We here at Hidden Jukebox seem to have an affinity for sophomore efforts by 90s bands. Radiohead's The Bends, TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool, Beck's Odelay, sort of, Oasis's What's the Story Morning Glory, etc. Wait, we haven't even done that one yet. Doesn't matter. Okay. I have an affinity for it. That's true. I didn't say that we covered it. But we will. Nothing seems to embody that second album success story better than Pearl Jam's 1993 hit record, Versus. Already a rock band, Pearl Jam took it to another level on this effort. Combining strong riffs with a heavier, hard-edged sound, Versus cemented Pearl Jam as one of grunge's titans. Despite claiming that it was a difficult album to write and record, the result was a cohesive set of songs that remain radio staples to this day. Always going against the grain, whether it was taking on Ticketmaster or choosing not to issue a video in an era where videos were everything, Pearl Jam still reached a level of success with this album that was unrivaled at the time. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Pearl Jam's Versus. I'm Matthew Amster Burton. I'm Jake Amster. And, uh, wow, like, I I sort of forgot about the whole Ticketmaster thing, and... Uh even though I bought a ticket from Ticketmaster this week, and I still fucking hate Ticketmaster. I, I want to say first, I love how it's only taken us seven episodes to get to what is actually considered a grunge album on our 90s album show. That's funny. You're right. Like, I guess Beck Odelay kind of is, no, but then you listen to it and you're like, not. that's not grunge at all. So it, it it's like we've been pur- purposely avoiding it or something. Yet, once we get into these albums, we're going to keep going, oh, well, I mean, this is one of my top five albums of the 90s. Yeah, so I think um, this is going to go right into like a big thing I want to talk about on this episode, which is what are the 90s albums that you loved at the time and you still go back to often, and which are the ones you loved at the time and don't go back to, and what do you think is the difference? Because this, for me... I realized, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it, falls into the don't go back to it very often category. See, this album I go back to all the time, and the album that will be extremely contentious to people that I don't go back to is Nirvana's Nevermind. Uh, I'm going to be right there with you on that one. I it, it, Even when I listen to the songs from it, or they come on the radio, I tend to change it. Um, so, I mean, I think, but I think never mind. like, um, you know, there, there's an obvious reason for that. Like, you know, it's painful to listen to because I, he's dead. It's not that it's for not me that? at okay. all. It, it just got so overplayed. Yeah. And, and I listened back to it and I, I'm a person who loves melody and it, while it is many things, it is not a very melodic album in my opinion. What? <laughs> I don't listen to the album and go and go. Oh, I'm gonna have this melody stuck in my head all day, the way that I listen to with Pearl Jam. Disagree, but okay, all right. So this album I go back to a lot. I go back to Ten a lot, and people are probably going to ask us, "How did you pick verses before you pick Ten? Why verses versus Ten? Why why Ten Ten versus versus Ten? Right. Uh, and really, I just think this is a more cohesive album, despite the fact that 10 has all of their biggest hits, except for Last Kiss somehow is right. their biggest hit that they ever had, which when I discovered that, I just went, no, bad humans. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's terrible. I, I don't get it. But Yeah, that song isn't good. But 10 had a live, even flow, Jeremy... Jeremy. Uh, one other huge hit for them too. Was there was there one other one on there? Porch was that a hit? It wasn't a hit, but it's still what they close most of their shows. Sure. With. So it, it was 
it was a big album for them. But this album, they seem to come into their own. This album is the first album they recorded with Dave Abrazese. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first album that one of one of their many drummers. One one of their five drummers. That's a lot of drummers. That is that is a lot of drummers. Uh, we'll we'll cover that in a minute. It's the first album that they record with Brendan O'Brien, their regular producer, and you can hear a difference between this album Ten. Yeah, Ten has this very washed over. Uh, kind of reverby sound to it. This is a very hard-edged rock sound. Right. They they transitioned from uh, late 80s production to 90s production, I it, think. It, exactly. As as much as 10 is a 90s album. Right. Uh, listening back to this album, I tend to be somebody who's in the uh, arena of man... I mean, th- that's where you'll find Pearl Jam also in the arena. Or a stadium these days. Yeah. Uh, that I'm like, they just weren't the best band on the planet until Matt Cameron joined them. And you listen back to this, you go, Dave Abrazese was a good drummer. Yeah, absolutely. Man, like like you listen to all of the tracks and it is made so much better by his playing. Oh, yeah. And particularly one of my picks this week is all about the drum and bass. Um, Well, what I was going to say is they put out a Pearl Jam 20 documentary uh, a few years ago when the band turned 20. And... You go. You get through. I think like two thirds, three fourths of the movie, which was directed by Cameron Crowe, and you finally get to this minute and a half segment that's called the drummer thing. And they're like, <laughs> "Okay, fine, we'll cover it." Yeah, we had a few drummers. They didn't work out. We finally wound up with Matt Cameron. It's been all good. I don't know what else you want us to say about this thing. Oh, that's totally fair. I do still think of Matt Cameron as the drummer from Soundgarden. Me, me too. I I can't help it. It's like <laughs> right. He's been with the band for something like 18 yep. years now and it's still like oh you know it's the guy who fills in for them exactly. because they can't yep. find another drummer <laughs> it makes no sense it's uh it's like the one time the drummer from sweetwater filled in for catfish lint trap did that really happen <laughs> totally did for for those who don't remember catfish lint trap was matthews <laughs> for those uh, who don't remember yeah well, how could you forget well you you <laughs> tend to mention it on almost every episode as so though it's like, <laughs> That's well, true. Cat Piss Lint Trap was a big band in the yeah, 90s sure. in Seattle. We'll cover Cat Piss Lint Trap's seminal first and only album at some point on this show, probably. <laughs> yeah, we never made an album. We oh, made shit. some very bad demos. <laughs> um, so one of the things I discovered about this album that I was really surprised by is it is Eddie Vedder's least favorite recording experience that he had with Pearl Jam. He, I, that makes sense. He had writer's sort of. block. Uh, they the rest of the band said that they couldn't pull songs together without him coming in and creating melodies over them, but he was having a lot of trouble getting comfortable in the studio. They recorded most of the album down in California, and he would fly down, he would come in, and they would say, okay, here's the pieces of a song that we've got together, write some lyrics, and not. He, it was just a time when he wasn't feeling inspired. That's a lot of pressure. It is. I mean, the sophomore album, when you're following up a huge hit, to try and make something that's even remotely as good, let alone that people like, is is a lot of pressure. Yeah, and I think, too, like, for 10, and, like, uh, even, like, I know Better Man was uh, an early song of his. Like, you know, he had a bunch of songs that he had written as a very young guy um, that, uh, you know, became part of this huge breakout hit album, 10, uh, and then, like, okay, now you got to do new stuff. Better Man was on Vitalogy, just so you know. Yes, yes, I know. Okay, just making sure. Uh, 
and and he did write that early. And there's yeah. a few Vitalogy songs that they wrote for this album that got left off mm-hmm. of it. Um, but the work that they put into it kind of shows because you now listen back to the album and you, you go, they created a bunch of hits again. Yeah. Um, so let's start and tried, out- and tried some really new stuff compared to what they did on 10, which was very, you know, cohesive straight ahead rock, except for oceans, which is one of my favorites. I love that. Song. So good. So let's start with the opening track of the album and yeah, then we'll discuss it. this a little bit more. So, uh, this is go. So the hard edge sound, uh, they do this kind of ethereal opening and then Brendan O'Brien chooses to leave in the four clicks of the drum sticks that yeah, yeah. Dave Abrazees does. It's this raw hard edged thing that they were doing on this album that they did not do on 10. Yeah. And the, the, the way the bass line and, uh, like, as a baseline and guitar line, like like uh, comes back during the chorus, but in a different context, really works for me. And what? they make me wait so long for the chorus. Uh, you I love, love that. that. I love that. <laughs> uh, so the interesting thing about that is this song is written by Dave Abrazees. He wrote it on an acoustic guitar, and that bass line is the main line that he wrote. And if you picture it on acoustic guitar, it's like, how the hell did he come up with that? I don't know. So, so the two parts that he wrote were that and that hard-hitting thing at the very beginning, the... Nice. Yeah, so that was him. And then talking about Eddie's writer's block, uh, the lyrics to this apparently are about his truck. That makes sense. A, a little bit, I guess. It, it, it's a really, really good opening track. It's It kind of leads into the whole hard-hitting aspect of this album. Yes. Now, you mentioned here that uh, this got a Grammy nomination for in 1995 for Best Hard Rock Performance. Did the alternative category exist already at that point? <sighs> I... I can't remember. Uh, no, it did. It totally did, because, because I'm about to like throw out some Grammy facts, as you'll see. So... Uh, yeah, so this was nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance because, like, who knows? 
Um, do you remember when, uh, I don't know if you were old enough to, to be cognizant of this, when Jethro Tull won the Hard Rock Heavy Metal Grammy during its first year, 1989? Anybody who's never seen a clip of this, it's, so I, it's on YouTube, and the band walks up. I mean, they've been around for... Well, and, and almost like, thirty years. They weren't already. even like the singer wasn't even there. And, yeah, and the rest of the band is like, um, we almost weren't going to show up exactly. because we thought it was so funny that they nominated us, nominated us for this. And Their record label said they wouldn't pay to fly them out, <laughs> and, and they beat out Metallica. <laughs> Metallica, right? <laughs> yes, and the presenters are Alice Cooper and Lita Ford, and there's like. What? They're like, who the hell is Jethro right. Tull? Um, so, uh, oh, yes, they also uh, also nominated the savior Jane's Addiction. Oh, God. Um, so, uh, while we're on the subject of the Grammys, the 1994 Alternative Album uh, Award was a travesty. Uh, the winner was Zuropa, which beat out Belly's Star, Automatic for the People, Siamese Dream, and In Utero. You right here on the other hand, the suburbs. I assume that that you're talking about Arcade Fire. Yeah, I mean that was that was probably the Grammys' best moment. Well, are you talking about when it won Best Alternative Album no, or best Album of the Year? Album of the Year. Yeah, I, I mean it was their best moment, and I think there were a lot of people at that point who went, "Who?" <laughs> yeah, it you know it was it was still oh, their, their smartest moment, but it right. still left a lot of people sh- like scratching their heads, going. I don't know this band. And after that, uh, Arcade Fire moved into arenas. Oh, mostly, for sure. Mostly because all of these people who had never heard of them are like, well, I guess I have to go see them if they won Grim <laughs> yeah, for Album true. of the Year. And then they probably saw them and went, this is really weird. And they moved back down to theaters again after that. Yeah. Uh, man, the suburbs doesn't get much better than that. Um, okay. You want to listen to Animal? Let's, yes. We're going to go through like the first three songs. Yes. Something you'll notice again and again on this album is the uh, the verse hits really hard and then they chill out a little bit for the chorus. I've never noticed that. I, You're I right. noticed it just now. That's that's really really cool. Yeah, um, like it's going to appear on the next song also. <laughs> uh, the first five tracks of this album just are like hard hitting over and over again. Even though the next song is sort of a ballad. Oh yeah. Uh, I just love the way that this album flows and the fact that they move from go into this song. It's it's like them saying, yeah, we're trying to be a harder band here. I want to talk a little bit about a couple things here. First off, this album has sold seven million copies. No slouch. Yeah. Uh, at the time that it it was released, it sold almost a million copies in its first week. 
and it held the record for most copies sold in a first week for any album for five years. So it wasn't like it wasn't beaten by Vitology. It wasn't okay. No, th- this is still because I know Vitology also release. did very well. It it did. It's it's certainly not as good of an album. I mean, uh, I think Vitology is great. It's I, I mean it's. You know, it's a mess, but it's it's a great album. And then their album started going downhill and downhill and downhill after that. But uh, one of the main lyrics of this song is one, two, three, four, five against one. And up until actually after they released the album, this album was going to be called five against one. Uh, Many cassettes were sold with it labeled as five against one instead of versus. Nice. And when I was researching this episode, I went on to, to eBay. I'm like, God, you probably have to pay like 150 bucks to find one of those cassettes. Three ninety nine. Nice. Yeah. I think in the CD booklet, it had like what would have been the cover of the five against one album. It did. Right. But now what's, what's interesting to me about this is the five against one, uh, title was, more to express what it's like being in the studio with a bunch of other people and butting heads and sometimes it can feel sure. like everybody against you. So is it like is it like the five band members and the producer? Uh that's that I, I <laughs> who's always the, who's the sixth tr- person. Yeah, trust me, I, I wondered about that. I'm like, okay. isn't it a five piece band? Whatever. Yeah. Um the the name versus oh, little, little known fact of Stone Gossard actually has a split personality. Oh, I was thinking of uh, their keyboard player whose name is something ridiculous like Boone or something like that. They have a keyboard player named Boone. They've had a keyboard player touring with them okay. basically since around the time that Matt Cameron started filling in until they find a new drummer. Okay. Um, versus the name comes from the, f- the speculation, but the fact that. At the time, it felt like the media was pitting grunge bands against each other. Sure. Like, well, who's really on top here? Who's the best of them all? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so so is Pearl Jam better than Nirvana? Right. Is it, it Pearl Jam? Is it Nirvana? Is it Red Hot Chili Peppers? <laughs> I, I mean, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was a great album, and we'll cover it. But uh, they they uh, are still writing the exact same songs that they were 25 years ago. Oh, very much ago. so. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um so this song, it it creates a one-two punch at the beginning of the album, and and I love that these are the two tracks that they decide to start the whole thing out with. Yes, it's almost like they sequenced this album after reading High Fidelity and the part where he talks about making the perfect mixtape and how like you have to like start at a 10 and then go up from there, and then we're going to chill out a little bit. Exactly. Okay, ready to chill out? Yep.
first of all, I think this is the first Pearl Jam track that it, that featured much acoustic guitar. I'm trying to think of if Black did or not. Maybe. By the way, that was the other really that big Of course. Hit. Yeah. Um, so when this album came out, I was playing in my first band in college, and uh, we did not real. I mean, some some members of the band knew how to play their instruments. I was not really one of them, and so I'm like, we should cover this song. This sound it sounds easy, um, and it'll be fun to sing. Let's give it a try. Um, so uh, another song we covered that year was "Lightning Crashes." Maybe the following year. Um, <laughs> that, that way, I'm sorry, her placenta falls to the floor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. I did not know anything about alternate tunings, and so like I p- found the chords for the song and and played you know the chords one four one four one right four, right right. Five. I'm like this sounds nothing like the album. This sounds terrible. Like I guess I don't know what they're doing, but we're not going to play it like this. I I never actually played it correctly. It's in an open G tuning. Until last night, when I when I tuned my guitar to open G and gave it a try, it's so much fun to play, and it sounds great. Uh, for a while, Adam Carolla had a, a morning talk show uh, that was syndicated nationwide, yeah. and somehow it failed miserably, even though it was really entertaining, in my opinion. And he, aside from loving the Jayhawks, who are an extremely <laughs> sure. underrated band, uh, mentioned multiple times on that show that this is one of his favorite songs. And, okay. it, you know... I didn't feel like this was a throwaway, but I love the hard rock edge of this album, and it took away from it a bit. And after he started talking about that, I went back and listened to this song, and I'm like, it is such a simple song with so many things going on. Jeff Amon's bass line in it kind of creates this this tonal variation underneath what seems like a really simple guitar line, but like you said, it isn't a simple guitar line at all. Right. The topic of what Eddie is talking about, uh, which is hard for me to say because I don't listen to the lyrics enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's just a very well thought out, well written song. And to put it as a third track after you have opened with these two hard edge tracks, it's the Nick Hornby thing all over right. again. It, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's definitely about a bad domestic situation of one kind or another, and um, you know, which is which is definitely something that that Eddie Vedder grew up with. Um, and I think of all of like the dude bands of this period, Pearl Jam is the one where you can go back and uh, you, you have to have a tolerance for cheese, but you're not going to listen to the lyrics and be like, oh god, no one says that anymore, right? Um, and. Their staying power, the fact that they are still selling out stadiums, kind of speaks to that a little bit. Absolutely. I don't know if you noticed, but at the very beginning of this track, you hear one of the members of the band say, you guys ready? And it just adds to that whole Brendan O'Brien approach to creating a raw album where it's like, hey, if something works in the track, don't take it out. For for those who don't know about recording, that type of thing is really really easy to edit out if it's left in it's 100 percent purposeful and he he does that a lot on all of pearl jam's recordings he doesn't want it to be clean he wants it to sound like they do live yes um and you listen to these tracks live and they're very very good at replicating what they did in the studio yeah and like 
he manages to capture like over the course of an album that's that's pretty consistent in like a you know driving rock feel like within individual songs like there are a lot of different like moods evoked right um and th- like sonically and we'll we'll definitely we'll, we'll be hearing some more of that um i want to talk about the ticketmaster thing for a minute okay sure here. so for those who don't remember or don't know pearl jam always went against the grain and always played by their own rules like i'm sure that the label was beside themselves that they didn't want to record a video oh absolutely like like furious and then the band decides that Ticketmaster is raping their uh their fans financially and says we're gonna try and find venues that will fit us size wise where Ticketmaster doesn't have a monopoly on them. Right. And and play only those. It didn't go well. They discovered very quickly that there's a reason that small independent ticket brokers don't have any rights to these big arenas and places to play because they just can't handle it. Right. So they tried this and failed, and then they tried taking on Ticketmaster, and as we can see years later, we're still looking at tickets that cost $50, and at the end of the transaction, paying $75. So didn't work at all, but kudos to them for trying at least. Yep. And that was that was the type of band they were at the time. When they would go on MTV to perform live, Often Eddie was just drunk as hell. There are some really, really bad live performances yep. from that era. Where he would have a, bo- a bottle of wine in he one hand. He still does that. <laughs> That's his kind of his shtick, right? I, I didn't think so, but like I saw them uh, in August of last year when they played at Safeco here mm-hmm. in Seattle, and it was. It was still him with a bottle of wine the entire show. And I don't know how old Eddie Vedder is now. He's got to be in his early 50s. Yeah. And and he just hasn't given that part of things up. It's like, we're going to play a three-hour show, and I'm going to get drunk during it. Except now it's like a you know single vineyard California cab. <laughs> and, and he's probably got a tolerance of about four bottles. Uh-huh. So if he's just yeah. drinking one bottle, he's dead sober during the entire thing. Yeah. It's 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 still an amazing show to watch for me. Yeah, how was that? I think the last time I saw Pearl Jam was at uh, auditorium venue in like ninety uh, nine or two thousand, maybe. They still put on maybe earlier than that. One of the best live shows out there. They 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 have their lights and sound mm-hmm. dialed in. I mean, they're putting on a full stadium production, which is we've covered already. Not easy to do. Yeah, and. But they're still doing a very raw live show where they'll bring out guest musicians. When I saw them, Brandy Carlisle came mm-hmm. out with them. Uh, Mark Arm came out the two nights later when they played Safeco again. Uh, so it's got a very live feel to it. But I've talked about this, I think, on the show before, where I feel like some musicians write songs when they're young that they don't think about at the time that they won't be able oh, to perform yes. when they're older. And somehow you mean, you mean just in terms of like like vocal quality or or let let me give an okay. example. Uh Bob Seeger had to cancel part of his tour oh, and just sure. and just announced that he's coming back here in November and I'm like, God, 
this is going to be my last chance to see Bob Seger. I've never seen him. He's got the best rock voice of all time. Yeah. Let me look up a more recent show on YouTube and see how he's doing. Well, he plays a lot of songs that weren't hits, most likely because the songs that were hits are way out of his vocal range. And the songs that he is playing are transposed down Uh so that he can sing them. And he's not playing guitar at all he's just standing up there with a microphone and it feels like a tribute yeah and it's sure. really he's, he's probably got like some good stories that he tells every night though right that's my favorite thing about seeing like a legacy act yeah totally i i, I want to see him with michael mcdonald and lionel richie it's <laughs> sure gonna, absolutely it's gonna be a great show uh lionel richie looks great yeah he he does actually eddie vetter looks great yeah, like sure. like the whole band still looks young but they the fact that this band didn't become a tribute to themselves, the fact that Eddie can still sing like that, yeah. the band can still play like that at their age, they are top of their game still. And it is really impressive to watch because I'm sitting there going, I'm 15 years younger than these guys, and I don't think that I could do what they're doing anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's intense. And, yeah. they, and they play for three hours straight. They don't need an opener. and And every night of tour, they do that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to listen to next? Uh, I want to listen to Rearview Mirror. Okay. So uh, I saw Pearl Jam play at uh, in Indio, California. At uh, it was not Coachella, but it was like a precursor to Coachella. Um, like they were Pearl Jam was headlining along with like several other bands, including American Music Club was one of them. Same venue though. Um, maybe Polo Empire Club. It's a big grass field. Yeah, it's same venue. Um. And I mean, what what other huge venue in Indio, California, is there? That's where Coachella is, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, it was it was like kind of the height of like uh, you know we're going to a grunge show, we have to behave badly in some way era. Um, and so uh, the two main two things I remember from that show, which which was a good show up to a point, and uh, the point at which it became bad was not at all their fault because people started throwing shoes. The audience started throwing shoes at the stage. What? Did, I, Just I, to be assholes. I, no, I'm more going. Did they bring extra shoes with them, or they, did they oh, go? That's a very good question. Did they go, this is worth it to walk out of here barefoot. I've, I've mentioned this before, but I always wonder when people throw underwear at the stage. Like, how did they get it off? 
<laughs> like it seems like it takes so much premeditation. Wait, right? Wait, have have I told the story yet about seeing spin doctors in two thousand four? Uh no. Okay. <laughs> I wanna I, hear I, this. I, I gotta tell a side story here. So I guess you're wearing a skirt, probably. Uh, okay. So my my second concert ever was Spin Doctor's Soul Asylum and Screaming Trees. Okay, that's a great lineup. You took me. You were there. It was August sixteenth, nineteen ninety three. I don't remember this. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you were definitely there. It was the first time I crowd surfed and I landed on my head. Cool. Yeah, definitely wouldn't do that again. So then, Spin Doctors do a reunion tour in two thousand four. Okay. Of really small venues and they did not fill them so they played this place in seattle called the ballard you know Firehouse. i feel bad for the band when that happens but it's so great if you're a fan this gets demoralizing okay um aside from the fact that they played two princes twice during the show <laughs> and the only reason wow, I, that's that's a total of four princes the the, the only reason i was there <laughs> did was you tell this before because i think i made that joke before you've probably <laughs> made that joke many times before just not on this show <laughs> okay, yet great so there's your one time please cool. don't do it again <laughs> Uh, so I only went because I got in for free because my friends were opening. Okay, and they open their show and they play a couple songs. And there is this uh, woman that let's just say she looks like she's a woman of the night wandering around. And within the first two songs, she takes off her clothes, throws them on stage, and she's wandering around the venue in her underwear. Okay, and. It, the promoter, who I knew really well, walks up to her and says, hey, listen, I'd love to watch you do this all night, but we can't allow this. You got to put your clothes back on. And she gently says to him, I can't. I threw them on the stage. Sure. And the promoter makes the band stop the show. <gasps> oh, and my God. Throw her clothes back down. At her. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so demoralizing. I'm like, I wonder if. I don't know. You could turn that into a funny moment but rather than a sad didn't. moment. Okay. Chris Barron is sitting up there oh, going, no. here's your dress, ma'am. Oh, like, like, I I wonder if any of them were like, let's do a reunion tour. Maybe we'll have to toss some people's clothes back at them. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> he was, and he's thinking, this is literally the opposite of why we got into the rock and roll game. Right. And now I'm picturing Eddie Vedder going, no, 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 no. You're going to need these to walk out of no, here. So, Here are your shoes. So a shoe hit him in the face. Oh, and God. And he stormed off stage, as he should have. Um, and then the crowd started to get angry. And it was like, okay, like, clearly, like, he does not want to play anymore, but he's going to have to come back and play another song or there's going to be violence. I was scared. It was the only time I've ever been scared at a show. That's interesting. Because, it was awful. Because seeing them with 60,000 people in a stadium... And the amount of respect that the that the the audience showed them. Oh yeah, their audiences outgrew that kind of behavior. Yeah, I think. because they're all in their thirties, forties, and fifties right. now. Um. So anyway, I was getting to a point about Rearview Mirror, which was that uh, this was the first time I saw him play guitar on stage. I think this was the first song where he played guitar on stage, and it was clearly like, okay, this is this is like as much of a guitar line as I'm capable of right now. Like, I'm new to this. I'm going to stand stock still with my guitar and just play this line over and over. And he did a good job of it. Like, you know, respect. He's He's got a lot better yes, at it. Yes, absolutely. This is the other song that they close a lot of their shows with nowadays. So it's this and Porch, which just goes to show you that they kept writing songs and they're still writing songs, but in terms of what people want to hear, it it's like going to see Fleetwood Mac. Of course. Like, 
like you're still great and we still love you and you can still fill arenas but don't you dare play that new crap play the stuff that we want to hear from the first couple albums yeah and like i i assume they've like made peace with that because like the actually this may have been one of the more most recent times i saw pearl jam was at the show box um they did a secret show you lucky bastard and uh the first half of the show they played stuff from no code which was the the most recent album at the time and then they took a little break and then eddie said and now it's time for the part of the show we call the Human Jukebox. And then they played the hits. I'm like, yeah, I, I feel you. Um, this uh, Rearview Mirror is easily one of my top three Pearl Jam songs. What are your top Pearl Jam songs um, from any album? Uh, th- this is really tough because I feel like it changes a lot. That's fine. To uh, just today. Um, today, I would have to go first off deep. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely. I just love that song. I would have to say Porch. Yeah. Um, The Unplugged uh, show that they record for MTV, Mm -hmm. they extend the version of Porch, and for some reason, Eddie writes pro-choice on his arm during that performance. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Which... The song doesn't really have to do with being pro-choice. I well, think I think it does, but like if you look at the lyrics, it's hard. I mean, I know they that uh, that is the conventional wisdom about the song that that it is about reproductive rights. But if you look at the at the lyrics, it's hard to really find it's it in there. Really hard yeah. to find it in there. But it's always been one of my favorites. And then most likely, Go or Animal. Anytime I hear either of those songs, what I was saying about changing the radio when Nirvana comes on. I never change the radio when those songs come on. Yeah. I love them. Um, so I'm going to say this one, Corduroy and Oceans oh, are my favorites. Corduroy is also a great song. Yeah. I always forget about that because they don't say Corduroy once in the song. <laughs> no, they don't. I don't know why it's called that. <laughs> I bet I bet someone in the studio was wearing Corduroy pants when they recorded it. Uh, totally. Totally. That's, that's usually how people come up with names for instrumentals, but yep. not in this case. Okay. Uh, uh, what do you want to listen to next? Let's listen to Dissident. So when I talk about melodies and singable melodies, yeah, you're right. That is just so singable. So Stone Gossard can play lead, but he's usually the rhythm guy on their songs. Is he playing lead on that? He, he's the one playing okay. that line. And usually, when you hear long extended solos from Pearl Jam, it's Mike McCready, and Mike McCready is 
very, very Jimmy Hendrix influenced. Very much so. Like he's almost always soloing with a wah. Yeah. He's he's I think admittedly ripping off Jimi Hendrix half the time that he's playing. And that's yeah, okay. I mean, like, him, him along with hundreds of other professional guitar players. Hundreds of other professional guitar players from Seattle. Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it's totally fair. And as long as you're doing it well like yeah. he does, who cares? Like, it, it's a good thing to emulate. So a lot of people, uh, for good reason, think that this song is about date rape. And in some interviews, uh, Eddie Vedder has said that this song is about date rape. Uh, but I found this quote where he says what he apparently sometimes he thinks the song is about. Maybe it depends okay. on whether he's drunk or not. Uh, he's a, one of the worst interviews in music. Uh, he he, uh, he yeah. uh, always talks like this and uh, can't, can't really come up with what, what he wants to say. But he says, in Dissident, I'm actually talking about a woman who takes in someone who's being sought after by the authorities for political reasons. He's on the <laughs> run okay. and she offers him a refuge. But she just can't handle the responsibility. She turns him in. Then she has to live with the guilt and the realization that she has betrayed the one thing that gave her life meaning. It made her life difficult. It made her life hell. But it gave her a reason to be. But she couldn't hold on. She folded. <laughs> That's the tragedy of the song. Did he start singing at that point during the interview? I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm like... So she took in a guy that she didn't know who was on the run and offered him refuge, and that's what she has to live with as guilt for the rest of her life? Um, I don't know. I mean, the funny thing is, little known fact, the uh, Sublime song Date Rape is also about that. I I figured that that song was about uh, making pancakes, but yep. ma- makes sense now when I think uh-huh. about the lyrics. They wrote really poignant lyrics, too. Sure, of course. That's what they're best known for. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sublime and their really sure. poignant lyrics. Th- yeah. Them and Jewel tend to fall uh-huh. into the same category for me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We'll be covering Sublime, Jewel, and apparently Third Eye Blind on this show. I, I would do a Sublime album. I, I I don't know. I don't know how to feel about Sublime. The, like, oh, Man, it, it is tough. There was a point where I was obsessed with them mm-hmm. and I... Okay, great. Out. This gets back to my my uh, big question for the episode, which is like, so is Sublime something you listen to a lot in the '90s and don't go back to now? Yes. Okay. Oh my god. So my freshman year of college, I already knew Forty Ounce to Freedom. The self titled album had just come out. Bradley Noel had died. Yeah. And we spent hours in dorm rooms just listening to them. Yeah, of course. Those those two albums over and over and over again. It w- it was. Like anytime we couldn't figure out something to put on, we put on Sublime. Sure, and and it was is ubiquitous the right word. Everybody loved it. Like like you could put it on in any dorm room, and regardless of what people's tastes were, everybody loved Sublime. I don't cry when my dog runs away. <laughs> don't do that, please. <laughs> See now, I now I hear those lyrics, or or like. People are like so proud of themselves that they know all of the Spanish lyrics. And oh, sure, of course, Santeria. No, no, no. Um, in in a caress me down. Oh, like, right, right, right. Like they can they can sing the entire song and and might not know what it means, but but they're yeah, like, I so know Spanish. I guess I guess the thing with Sublime is like you you know first of all you always get bonus points for dying, yep. um, and it's it's he I feel like he would have outgrown. The things that make Sublime terrible, but we'll never know. Well, see, this this brings up a point of of 
why I think I lost a lot of respect for them is Nirvana, Kurt Cobain dies, and they just let it lie. They, yeah. They said, that's it. Our- well, wait a minute. Except for like the 17 box sets, best ofs, live albums. Okay, let me rephrase. Okay. They let live performances lie. Okay. Um, aside from doing a song with Paul McCartney a they few didn't, years ago. They didn't make the uh, the Seattle grunge all-stars and exactly right. and and was that so, it long beach dub all-stars all stars. and then they started touring with this young kid named rome and just called it <laughs> cool sublime name. with rome sublime with rome it's it it just yeah feels like going to see a cover band play sure because let's face it not to be rude but nobody cared about the other two guys in sublime what you mean oh if i, if I could have come up with their names Bud right now Gow and <laughs> do you say bud Gow? Goff, G A U G H, and I can't remember the name of the other guy. Okay, uh, see, it just it becomes a tribute to itself. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I'm trying to think of other groups from that era that I really, really loved, but won't listen to it. I've anymore. already mentioned the biggest one for me, which is that uh, I listened to Throwing Copper a thousand times. It, it's a great album. It's good, but. I never go back and listen to it, partly because that guy just seems like such a dick. Why? I mean, why is there, do I care? Yeah, is it is there a reason that he seems like a dick to you? Um, well, I mean, just because like later, like like he was definitely like on record, like saying saying dickish things about his bandmates, and uh, you're sure you're not thinking of Creed? I'm definitely not thinking of Creed. I never liked Creed. I like, feel like, okay, I, fine. I'm going to go back and listen to Throwing Copper. It's probably fine. It, it's it's a really, really good album. There there are great albums from that era that I don't listen you know, to it's anymore. Not, it's not really that the guy seems like a dick. It's that it feels... And and this is this is like the part that's that's hard to explain or quantify. Like it feels like a part of my youth that I left behind somehow. Well, not it doesn't feel like a grown up album to listen to. And why that should be a criterion for listening to an album, it shouldn't. But, not not to toot our own horn here, but one of the joys of this podcast is that we get to go back and celebrate albums like that. Yeah. Like, we're about to cover... Fine, let's fucking do Throwing Copper. We're going to. Okay. We're about to go back and cover Tori Amos. I mm-hmm. haven't listened to Tori Amos in years. There's somebody who I listened to a lot back in the day okay. and stopped. And you had mentioned Under the Pink, and I went back and listened to that in Little Earthquakes, and I was like, God, these are great They're albums. They're both fantastic. And I haven't listened to them in years. Can we do Octung Baby on this show? I we that was can. another. I loved Octung Baby. I was never a YouTube person. Okay, like, uh, th- this is gonna catch me so much flack, but I just don't love the Joshua Tree. Oh boy, you're in big trouble now. Yeah, it's 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 like saying that you don't like the Eagles. Somebody is gonna get really pissed off. Oh at yeah, you. well you know I don't like Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young. So Neither do I. There we I go. Just had this conversation. <laughs> Not my thing. All right, uh, let's listen to WMA. I don't think we're even gonna make it to the chorus on this one. Comes in at two minutes twenty two seconds.
saying words. You never know with Eddie yeah, Vedder. Right. Like, look up the lyrics to Yellow Lead Vedder sometime. <laughs> yeah, I know. He changes them regularly. love how this song just like simmers and simmers and simmers and builds up to the chorus, the explosive chorus. It's partly writ- written by Jeff Amon, it's partly mm-hmm. written by Dave Abrazes. Yeah, and this this is just all about the rhythm section. Like that bass line is fantastic. The drums are like, you know, the use of the toms and the huge reverb on the drums is just atmospheric. I love it. You, you know what I was thinking about listening to this? Name another song on the first two Pearl Jam albums, maybe first three, that has harmonized vocals. Yeah, that wasn't really their thing. It really wasn't their thing. I mean, even on a melodic song like Daughter, nope. This this song is one of the only ones I can think of that has harmonized vocals, and it works really, really well for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we haven't talked at all about like like the quality of Eddie Vedder's voice, which is really what Pearl Jam is mostly about. Well, it's, it's weird. It, nobody seemed to try to copy what Kurt Cobain was doing. I don't want to say nobody. I mean, uh, Gavin Gavin Rossdale. Yeah. Right. Um, But Eddie Vedder, I'm sorry. I think Stone Temple Pilots was basically a Pearl Jam ripoff band. Uh, At first. At at first. Yeah. Yeah, They they definitely changed it up as they went on. Uh, Creed, I mean, Scott Stapp is just completely ripping off Eddie Vedder. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting because like the... Definitely, you can see like the accusation sticks because he came, Eddie Vedder came in with such a characteristic style. He did. It's, it's and all I his own. Absolutely understand. I know people who hate his voice, and I totally get that. It's, you know, it's different enough to be hateable. Well, that's, that's kind of speaking to how unique and original it is. A good voice tends to be polarizing when it's unique because you're not going to go, well, uh, I sort of like it's either going to be your thing right. or it's not your thing. Yeah, as much as I, I think Madonna is great um, and a and a fantastic songwriter and, and a good singer, like her voice is so middle of the road that it's hard to imagine someone saying like, you know, I would like Madonna, except I can't stand her voice. Well, we mentioned Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I do not like their voices and I understand... You know, conversely, I understand why someone would love them. But when they come on the radio, you recognize who it is immediately. Immediately, yes. Yeah. So, so it's polarizing, and the people who love them, it's part of why they love them is because they hear it and they go, "Oh, there's my old favorite, Neil Young." And Eddie Vedder, like I said, I feel like they haven't written. They've probably written a few good songs, but a good album, it, it basically stopped after Vitalogy. Yeah. Uh, but. Anything that they write, still, even to this day, it comes on and I go, 
there's Eddie Vedder. This must be the new Pearl Jam song. Yeah, absolutely. It, it it's very very hard. Or to, or it, his uh, ukulele solo album. Uh, yeah, what a genius idea that was. I, I know that's one that I don't go back and listen to regularly uh-huh. or listen to for the first time. <laughs> I, I'm sure I've heard it around. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I know that when he did a tour behind it, I went, I'm not going to try for tickets for it that. Was, it was definitely the Eddie Vedder work that I was most likely to hear at uh, my local tea place while that was open. Great. Mm-hmm. That that uh, is that maybe makes sense, the, right? That is maybe the biggest insult you could possibly throw at any better. <laughs> yeah, I loved that cafe, but their playlist was not the best. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else? Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, come get at us at uh, facebook.com slash hidden jukebox or hidden jukebox.com and uh, let us know what are your top three Pearl Jam songs? Um, if one of them is off of binaural, I'm impressed. Um, and that that wasn't even that recent anymore, right? I I don't even remember. I I didn't look that What's up. What's the most recent Pearl Jam album? Uh, Can you even name it? Is it Backspacer? I, I don't think it is. I don't think it's Lightning Backsp- Bolt. Is it Lightning it's Bolt? It's Lightning Bolt. And supposedly they're releasing another album this year. So kudos sure, to not? them for still going. Absolutely. Unlike bands like REM, those quitting bastards. <laughs> Okay, so uh, you can find us, like I said, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox and hiddenjukebox.com. And uh, we've already teased uh, some upcoming albums. Uh, and uh, this is going to, I feel like I want to ask you, like, are there any shows you want to plug? But uh, this is going to air in like <laughs> three months. Yeah. So. So, so unfortunately, I can't do that. So happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, um, I, I, I Go will... see Jake's Halloween show. <laughs> <laughs> They're all going to be wearing jack-o'-lantern heads. I will say I'm, I'm hopefully by this time going to have put up an Instagram page for us. Where oh, you that can, would be great. Where you can look up covers of the albums that we are talking about. Because you couldn't find them elsewhere? Uh, exactly. It's it's important. Or maybe I'll find a picture of Snoop Dogg looking like a crip and go, here's Snoop Dogg. <laughs> okay, yeah, that sounds good. Um, yep, the, the most recent... Uh, Pearl Jam album was, in fact, Lightning Bolt 2013. 2013? Yeah. Yeah. So they basically tour behind nothing very regularly. Well, or behind, like, a deep catalog of hits. True. True. If if they can make $12 million at one show, good for them. Absolutely. Can we do that? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) But if you figure it out, let me know. All right. Uh, I'm Matthew Epster-Burton. I'm Jake Amster. See you next time.